0: we all do better when we all do better that means everyone all genders and colors just love one another we'll have so much fun
1: you know you you get all of this discussion about tenure and tenure means you have a job for life Mm -hmm. and and, you know you you
0: can never be fired if you have tenure
1: all of that gobbledygook which i
0: know isn't true
1: it isn't true
0: Welcome to the Indivisible MN03 podcast. Thanks for joining us today. We're here to talk about union issues. And I have two union leaders with me. I have Jim Grabowski from IFO, which is Interfaculty Organization. So you represent the four-year universities in the state system. Is that correct?
1: In the state system. In the so state system.
0: Right. And I have Kevin Lindstrom, who is the faculty president for MSCF, Minnesota State College Faculty. So that's the two year community colleges and technical colleges in the system.
2: It is. There are about uh, 4,000 of us at 39 different locations across the state.
0: So, Jim, how many faculty do you represent? 4,000
1: or so. This is why we get along so
0: well. Oh, you I'm just have them. the same number. Okay. Pretty close. What is the role that unions play? either a teacher's union or in general unions, within our community here?
2: Well, from a higher ed perspective, a lot of it has to do, I think, with ensuring the quality of education, in particular the interactions between students and faculty, and allowing faculty the freedom to create an environment where learning best occurs.
1: Hmm. I don't know how I
2: can improve on that answer. Ah.
0: (laughs) So how does having a unionized faculty improve the quality of the classroom?
2: It ensures the freedom of the faculty member to teach the best way they know how. And I think back to my student experience, which was largely the reason that I got into this business to begin with, and I think about the different teaching styles of the faculty that I interacted with, and I remember distinctly my freshman English teacher who every day sat behind a giant oak desk with his hands folded on the desk and lectured to teach us composition in in english it was amazing i learned to write To, to the extent that i can string a few words together and make a sentence in a written piece today it's because of how he taught me and i don't really know how he did it sitting
0: behind a desk it
2: was amazing likewise i had a freshman sociology professor who was as animated as anyone I have ever seen in a classroom. And we were in a lecture hall, and he would march up and down the center aisle of this lecture hall and back and forth in front of the lecture hall, arms waving, voice raised oftentimes, just passionate about everything. And I remember one day he was walking up that center aisle, and I was sitting on the aisle. And he was so into uh, his topic and how he was delivering it. And as he was walking by me, this giant glob of spit came flying out of his mouth and landed on my shirt. Oh, no. And, And he paused for just a split second and then just kept on going. He was so into it. And so for me, those two examples illustrate the true power of academic freedom in the classroom and the way that different styles can connect with students in meaningful ways
0: one of the benefits of having teachers be part of a union is that it ensures that academic freedom so that they can choose what they teach and how they teach it in the classroom based on the needs of their students
1: absolutely i think i'd extend on that in two different directions the first is what the union does through its contract in terms of setting the terms and conditions of employment it establishes the parameters within which you are expected to operate so Within our contract, you are measured on five different areas. You know, you, you get all of this discussion about tenure, and tenure means you have a job for life. and, mm-hmm. and, and You,
0: know, you, you don't can have never to, be fired yeah, if you have tenure.
1: All of that gobbledygook. Which I
0: know isn't true.
1: It isn't true. <laughs> within our contract, each faculty member throughout his or her entire career is measured against five different criteria. So we have to teach, mm-hmm. and teaching within our contract is first and foremost. We also have to do... Uh, creative work or research. We have to continue our professional development so we can't stagnate. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to contribute to student growth and development, and that's outside of the classroom. So that's interacting with students in in terms of life, looking at their future. What is it that they want to do? Where is it that they want to go? How is it they can enhance their program? And we have to participate in service contributions to, in our case, the university and the community. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the benefits of the union is that it lays that out pretty plainly so that people can know what it is that is expected of them in their workplace in order to succeed. The other thing uh, that I would mention really quickly I was raised in a right-to-work state, Mm -hmm. and when we were at the University of Oklahoma, we were newly married, and we wanted to start a family. Mm -hmm. And it just so happened the year that we had uh, our first child, I also had some minor surgery. And that came up to more than 10% of our income. Here in the state of Minnesota, Kimberly and I realized that we could actually have a family because there were benefits and salary that allowed us to have that family. That didn't exist when we were at the University of Oklahoma. So it took that whole life piece, which is outside of our work, Mm -hmm. off the plate. It wasn't first and foremost, how is it that we're going to survive? How is it that we're going to uh, be a family? How is it that we're going to move forward? At Oklahoma, and I'm sorry, Oklahoma, I'm not picking on you, that was a big worry for us. And here in Minnesota, it was not the same worry. We were able to do our work and understand that we were able to have both, a family, a real life outside of our work.
0: Because the teachers union here, the faculty union in Minnesota, has negotiated for contract and benefits that allow you to have good health insurance, for exactly. So you didn't have to worry about, can I afford to have a baby?
1: Nope. So the other anecdote, before I became university prof, I was a high school teacher, Mm -hmm. and I taught in South Dakota, another right-to-work state. Both my parents were living in South Dakota. Both my parents taught at Northern State University, which is in the northeast corner. In 1985, teaching in a high school in South Dakota, I was making $13,000 a year.
0: I'm sorry to ask this, but how long ago was that? <laughs>
1: 1985. Oh, it, so not, was, we're
0: not talking about the 1920s. No, like no, no. $13,000 no. a year? Yeah,
1: exactly. And through a whole interesting uh, series of events uh, that weren't focused on me, but uh, on the discipline that I taught at the time, a whole bunch of teachers were riffed. So uh, it was last hired, first fired. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, they no longer needed my services. And I moved to Minnesota. I was teaching in Osakis and Sauk Center. And I went from $13,000 a year, just by crossing this imaginary political border, to $21,000 a year. And you say, hey, you know, I can, I can live on this.
0: Let's circle back just a little bit before we get into the whole right to work and what that means. Just in general, unions, not just teachers unions, but like I have a nephew who's a welder, and people who are in those other sort of trade unions. I hear you saying that one of the things unions do for us as a community is ensure that people have basic access to health care, to a living wage, to those sorts of benefits that allow you to have a productive life, right? That, That when you were working in a state that didn't have a union, it was very hard for you to access those things like health care and living wage, things that a lot of progressives value.
1: On on my wall in my office, I have uh, together we bargain, alone we beg. Mm -hmm. And that was the case because you had to argue individually rather than collectively for anything and everything because it was not going to be out of the generosity of an individual's largesse or goodwill, that I was going to increase my wages. I was going to increase my benefits. I was going to have time to, you know, whatever it happened to be, it was, please,
0: may I? (laughs) Before workers unionized, if we go way back in history, right, it it was everyone for themselves. And that's still the case for places where there aren't unions is each individual person has to hope that they can negotiate on their own some kind of, you know, salary increase or something, you know, you walk into your boss's office and say, I think I deserve a raise. But unions allowed for that collective bargaining, right? That power of the group to come together and say, we demand better, safer working conditions, for example, or, you know, a a salary increase. Like, actually, at some point, I want to come back and talk about the teacher's strike. But let's get into this. You mentioned right to work, Jim. And some of our listeners may not understand that really is a misnomer. What are we talking about? What does that really mean?
2: It largely has to do with the decimation of unions, um, and very deliberately so. But Uh, why
0: do they call it right to work then?
2: A good deal of this effort is based on deliberately misleading folks to believe that it's something that it's not. It's special interest groups, big money special interest groups, uh, the National Right to Work Foundation, the Koch brothers, um, a lot of other heavily moneyed interests that are looking to essentially hold workers down. And I think that's sort of, to get back to what Jim was talking about, I would kind of boil down what he was describing to stability, trying to raise workers to the highest common denominator. I think the efforts on the other side, again, mislabeled right to work, oftentimes are about creating instability and driving things towards the least common denominator.
0: Which really benefits then the corporations or the institutions. If you can break the unions, then they can take advantage of their workers, essentially.
2: Absolutely. Again, I think it becomes a least common denominator scenario. So if you have a union and everybody's in it collectively working together, you work to rise everybody up. And if you lose that collective bargaining ability, it really becomes one against another to Mm -hmm. see how low you can go. Mm -hmm. Um, So rather than us saying together, how much can we uh, rise together? It becomes how, how low can I go below you?
0: I happen to have a Paul Wellstone sign in my garage still from a long time ago, and his slogan, we all do better when we all do better, it makes me think very much of that's what unions stand for, that idea of we all rise together. So we've got big money coming in trying to break the unions. How are they going about this? And this has happened in other states. So what actually has happened to undermine collective bargaining and the power of unions to help their workers?
2: Well, in both Wisconsin and Iowa, it was a pretty straightforward formula. It had to do with electing uh, Republican leadership Mm -hmm. um, in all aspects of state government and then immediately enacting legislation. In Iowa, it was a matter of a couple of weeks after a new legislative body took office that right-to-work legislation was passed and implemented just like that.
0: Very quickly, they can turn this around. If the right people with these interests get into office and have control of government, it doesn't take them long for them to pass these These laws that undermine the unions.
2: Not at all. The model's uh, been created. The mold has been made.
0: So they're just going in and applying it to different states once they get control of the branches of government. What have they done in Wisconsin, for example? The legislature just passes laws saying you can't bargain anymore? It's that simple?
2: It kind of (laughs) is. It it, (laughs) really is. It's really just that simple. It it unfortunately is. And it's usually there's a provision that says upon expiration of the existing collective bargaining agreement. So
0: once the contract is up, that's there, it no more there contracts. Will, there will
2: be no more. And so the folks we've talked to in Wisconsin will say here is the contract they'll create a visual and they'll say here's the contract that we had prior to right to work legislation and it will be 60 70 80 page document and surprisingly I think often for folks all but about 3 pages of that are not about money. They're about working conditions, about mm-hmm. creating that stability we talked about, about creating an environment where learning best occur. And maybe two or three pages of the document are about the financials, the salary, and that kind of thing. But in the end, they'll say, we're left with a one-page contract. It literally is that. And it's usually defined by the legislation. It's very limited. And it's, you know, you will have salary increases that are... Either a a function of a cap that the legislation creates, or b a function of inflation, and that's it.
0: So some of the practical implications of those changes are that they've lost some of the protections they had previously for um, working conditions, and they're not going to get the same kind of salary raises that they would have been getting under the previous contract or or similarly negotiated contracts moving forward.
1: That's the interesting observation. I mean, where they've been very successful is demonizing unions by saying they come to the table and they just run over us with a Mack truck, which always makes me laugh.
0: Yeah, it's as a union president, is that what you do? Can you go in there and just run them over with well, like a steamroller?
1: You know, I... I some people might say yes, but, <laughs> but but the fact of the matter is that in terms of bargaining, you know, what that automatically invites is the competence of the people who sit across the table. If we're walking in and uh, running away with absolutely everything that we want, well, who is it that they're putting at the table? Right. It doesn't happen. That's when we not sit the down, way the negotiations no, work. No, it doesn't.
0: I'd be making a lot more money if that's what was happening.
1: Indeed. I just want to say that as a teacher, yeah.
0: <laughs> I'd be making a lot more money if you were going in there and getting everything you want.
1: Exactly. <laughs> you know, and and the, again, in terms of the IFO contract, we are much more about language than we are about dollars. The university faculty have always been very interested in the terms and conditions of employment. So, how is it that we can be more effective in the classroom? How can we find supports for What we do in the classroom in terms of professional development, in terms of our advising piece, we look at those different aspects more than just simply coming in and saying, I need an X percent increase in in terms of my salary. It's always been secondary for us. The demonizing that takes place makes it all about what Kevin was referring to, which is the money. Mm -hmm. Right. They come in and they demand too much money. They want too much money. They're taking too much money. And we're not getting any return on our investment, which takes me back to that the five criteria that we have in our contract, which uh, take a look at these five different areas. And we are evaluated on these five different areas during your probationary period you are evaluated every single year. And after your probationary period, you're evaluated every three or four years. And as you are promoted, you continue to be evaluated. So it's not just simply walking into the room saying, give me more, and I've got a job for life, and suck it up. There is this give and take between the employer and the union looking to continually improve, in our case, the quality of education that we provide to our students.
0: So speaking of that and people framing teachers as greedy, I just want to go back to the strike that I mentioned before. You, Jim, you said your sister was part of that. Sister-in-law. Sister-in-law was part of that action in West Virginia. I'm curious what both of your take is on what happened there and, and the outcome of it. I believe that that's a non-unionized state. Isn't that also a right-to-work state?
1: So right-to-work doesn't mean that you don't have unions. Right. Uh, Michigan is right to work, and they have unions. Iowa now is right to work, and it has unions. So right to work, what that means is, as Kevin was pointing out, stripping away different powers or or opportunities that the unions have in order to bargain for the terms and conditions of their employment. In the case of Iowa, for example, uh, part of the law requires that they recertify on a yearly basis. Which is purely punitive, right?
0: What do you mean by recertify?
1: <laughs> well, that they have to get the uh, members of the union to vote every single year, saying this is what we want to do, and basically
0: uh, say we're still a union that's every right. year. They get all their members to vote and say we're yep. still a union. Yep.
1: So, in the case of West Virginia, West Virginia hadn't had uh, any salary increases, if I remember correctly, for at least four years. Mm-hmm. But the genesis, uh, again, if I remember correctly, was about uh, PIA, which is an acronym that has to do with their health care benefits. The fact of the matter was that the uh, legislature in the state of West Virginia wasn't really interested in dealing with it. And I think they thought that teachers would simply suck it up. Yeah. Like
0: they've been doing.
1: That's right. And go away. And they didn't. They walked out and they said, look, you know, this is the reality. We're 49th or 48th in terms of the nation in what we get in terms of salary and mm-hmm. benefits and we're not going to put up with it anymore it was it was a very significant action on the part of the teachers uh, eight
0: days. I think, they Nine, were out? I think Nine, the ni- okay. yep. ninth day I think is when they settled it. That's
1: right. Yeah. Well, and as is witness or a testimony to that fact, you had uh, one part of the legislature say, yeah, we'll provide this was the house right in the state of West Virginia said 5% increase and they were ready to go back in.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then the Senate took it and said, "Nah, <laughs> four. And so, they, hey, wait a minute. We're not going to do that. Uh, so they stayed out until and, – and the governor was on the side of the teachers in this saying, look, this is the reality of the circumstances. This is a situation that we can afford. This is a situation that they uh, merit. Let's get it done. Uh, but you know, when things get into the realm of politics, um, they tend to go to hell.
0: Well, and without the ability for those teachers to organize themselves, it wouldn't have worked if they hadn't all walked out. Right? So if just a handful of teachers had decided, well, we're not OK with just sucking it up again, right, that wouldn't have worked. The power in that action, from my perspective, is that they all walked out or, or almost all of them. I'm not sure how many teachers still. Oh, no, they
1: walked. Yeah. This, was, this was all teachers, all sections That's of the state. Right. They walked.
0: And to me, that underlines that power of organizing. That's what unions help, help us to do or something like that where, yeah, we haven't gotten a pay raise in four years, and our healthcare costs keep going up. So essentially, we're getting less money every year because we have to pay more for our benefits, and we're not getting any salary to offset that. So I know in Minnesota, at least, I have a child who's in middle school, and often there are days, if a teacher is sick, where they have no sub because we have a teacher shortage. And to me, those all play in to that issue is how do we recruit, how do we retain talented teachers, which is what we want. I think we all agree (laughs) that we want high quality teachers. We want good learning environments for students at all levels. How do we do that if we can't ensure that they have a living wage, that they have access to benefits and health care, that they have safe and um, good working conditions?
1: So in case you think that I'm just a... uh... A union thug. <laughs> I also sit...
0: I wish people could see you, too. I'm sorry. <laughs> when...
1: I, I'm also on my local school board, and oh, I negotiate teacher contracts on behalf of the district. So by day, I'm, you know, labor, and oh. by night, I'm I'm the man. <laughs> you know? you and, get to play
0: both sides of the table there.
1: Well, which is really interesting because, again, just to your point, and and this is K-12 right, as opposed to higher education, right. those are concerns of the school district. How do we attract and retain quality teachers? Uh, and so it, it is... In this case, again, we just settled our contract. We got a tentative agreement uh, earlier this week and probably Monday night. Uh, the and school board or yeah, I yeah, know, yeah, yeah. school, school board. No, school board yeah. with uh, with the teachers in, in my small little district. And uh, really, in terms of bargaining, it's a collaborative effort. It's not simply positional that where I come in and, you know, I bang on the table and say – you need to do this and you're doing not enough of that and we're going, we talk about issues and we talk about how is it that we're going to attract and retain teachers at the same time uh, provide uh, for those teachers that have been in the district for, you know, a, a long time or in, in between times, whatever it happens to be. Uh, and so as a process, I have found it on both sides of the table to be very rewarding because you have two groups that have their mission, vision, and values right in front of them and talk together and work together to get to that particular point. Does it get contentious? Well, of course it does. I've been married 30 years and I've had some really good arguments with my <laughs> wife, but she's still my wife, right? No,
0: I hope so, right? Yeah, 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 no,
1: no, at least it was when I went out this morning. <laughs>
0: okay. Yeah, that's an interesting point you bring up about um, being on the the school board as well, because it's it's good that you have that perspective of both sides of it. And I think ultimately, I would hope that the administrators, the school board members, the legislators even, like in West Virginia and and even here where they have to approve the contracts – ultimately would agree on the same goal, which is to have high quality education. And even in other unions, you know, that you have high quality working conditions and that you can attract and retain the talent that you need for all those positions, right? You know, plumbers, welders, electricians, the trade unions, as well as, you know, artistic unions, the Actors Guild, like all of those things have that same underlying premise, Mm -hmm. right? Is that they're helping to ensure that the best people are in those positions and they're doing the best job that they can do.
2: And I think sometimes people forget that uh, a prior leader in our union would always say, "The worst thing for us is a bad teacher." Right, and it's absolutely we don't want to
0: pro- as a union. You don't want to protect the bad teacher or the you know the bad welder, the person who's not following the safety procedures or whatever it happens to be.
2: Exactly, yeah. and and that's the stereotype that's often yeah. pinned on us yeah. is well, they protect the bad teachers, right. No, what we do is we promote the good ones, and we want more good ones. And that is that common interest oftentimes with management, especially in education, right. where the only way it works is if you promote excellence in the classroom. If you adopt a least common denominator approach, that doesn't end well for anyone. But this notion that we uh, exist to protect bad teachers is laughable. Bad teachers are bad for us. Right. Um, everybody deserves due process. We ensure that for everyone. Mm -hmm. That shouldn't be mistaken with protecting bad teachers. Those are two entirely different things.
0: Right. Well, and that's a democratic value. That's not just a union thing, right? Due process is a fundamental part of our democracy. And that just spills over into your working environment, that unions are taking up that mantle of protecting due process.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And in fact, uh, part of the value of the union, as long as you're talking about the Bad yeah. teachers yeah uh, we provide professional development if you will mm-hmm. for our faculty on our campuses uh, what to do what not to do right uh, so that if it's not crystal clear if it's not common sense then we're going to put it for uh, in front of you in in a manner that is, uh, impossible to ignore that this leads to a bad outcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, this leads to a positive outcome, and and we provide that as a service uh, for all of our folks. And it, whether it be because uh, we have all kinds of different policies, uh, are we're governed by policies of the board of trustees. Uh, So 1B1, for example, is uh, a policy on discrimination Mm -hmm. and uh, all of the different classes that we protect. 1B3 is sexual violence. This is something that's in the news uh, all the time. And we talk about – we inform people. We make that policy real for them and say, look, this is how this applies. Make sure that you're paying attention to that so that you don't get into trouble. And we don't – have to go through a due process situation, you know, c- keeping that that element of um, where folks can make a wrong turn, where they can make a mistake, and educating them beforehand mm-hmm. so that we avoid that. Uh,
0: another question I have, I was just thinking as we were talking here about um, quality okay. of instruction, is how does this impact students? Like, what what are the ramifications, real practically speaking, for students in our yeah, schools, both K-12 and higher ed specifically, if the unions are undermined in such a way so that they they lose a lot of the power and benefits that they're able to get. So how does that, what do you think it will look like for students?
2: I think of two things immediately. Number one, it has to do with the uh, qualifications of the person standing at the front of the classroom.
0: Yes. Let's talk about that more specifically, because I bet a lot of our listeners don't understand what qualifications are needed. Like you can't, you can't, can't just walk in and say, yeah, I'm going to start teaching math, right? I'm Our contract actually even specifies minimum qualifications that you have to meet.
2: Absolutely. We have a credentialing process that Mm -hmm. says everybody for each discipline that they teach in must meet a certain threshold to be able to teach in that discipline. And for the liberal arts, it's oftentimes a master's degree in that field. Mm -hmm. And for the more technical fields, it is usually a combination of some sort of education plus on the job experience. Mm -hmm. So the notion really is uh, expertise in the field and it's insured by these credentials, and that ultimately does contribute to a better student experience.
0: Personally, I've had some experience, right, because I'm, I'm the chapter leader for my college union, and that credentialing process, it is there to guarantee that we have a minimum level of expertise so that the people who are walking into the classroom, you're guaranteed at least a minimum number of credits or work experience for the more technical, Fields. And we have had situations at our college where there have been people teaching who didn't meet the minimum quals for a variety of reasons. And so then, because of our contract as a union, we can go to the administration and say, Look, what's going on here? Not not necessarily that um, the person is unqualified, but we can go and say, Let's talk about this. Why, Why do we have somebody teaching in this area who doesn't meet our minimum quals? And if we didn't have a contract, the administrators could just put I think, whoever they want into the classrooms without guaranteeing that, yes, they have a master's degree or higher degree than that even. I worry sometimes if we didn't have our union contract that the quality of preparation and the level of instruction would go down for students because we wouldn't have that basic criteria being met across the board for all of our teachers.
2: Absolutely, and I think it's also important to note in that preparation realm that our contract not only mandates Discipline specific expertise, but also talks about teaching and learning competencies and right. mandates that all of our faculty take coursework in those areas. And how as to well. teach, not Absolutely. just that they
0: know their discipline, but they know how to teach. Absolutely. Too.
2: And again, that's something that we want in our contract because, again, we're looking for excellence in the classroom.
0: Right. And students would feel that. I mean, students would notice if the quality instruction dropped because there just wasn't the same level of preparation.
1: You see that all the time in teacher evaluations. So there, there are a stock number of different types of evaluations based on um, the structure of a class. If it's a lecture class, if it's some sort of project-oriented, a kind lab of thing. class. That's right. Yeah. And and there tends to be a question in there about uh, uh, student assessment of the faculty members' degree of knowledge. Mm-hmm. You know, and whether or not they know what. Do it they is know their stuff? Covered. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. Do and, students
0: think that instructor knows their stuff?
1: Exactly. Let me go back uh, for one second because your original question was, what happens if that's missing? Right. Uh, I mentioned earlier that you know I taught in South Dakota. It was a rift, and I came over, and, and I taught in Osakis and Sock Center. Mm-hmm. Well, Sauk Center at that time, so this is 1986, 87, I think, didn't have a contract and hadn't had a contract for three years, four years. The parents were upset with the teachers. Mm-hmm. The school board, of course, was upset with the teachers. Mm-hmm. The teachers were upset with the school board and Mm -hmm. the parents, and the students understood that really well and used it in the classroom. That was a really, really tough year for me to teach Hmm. because it was totally antagonistic. Hmm. The focus wasn't in that particular year on teaching. It was trying to maintain some sort of healthy balance so that you could get through the process. Now, I would tell you uh, that probably the greatest reward that I have ever received in my life as a teacher happened uh, a number of years ago when I moved back into the area and there was a Spanish teacher, because my discipline is world languages, Mm -hmm. uh, who was teaching in my district who came up and said, you were my teacher that year in Sauk Center and you were the reason that I became a teacher. Oh. So that that's awesome. I, Those are the stories
0: that make it worthwhile, that's right? right? I, still, I
1: still have that on my wall. You know, I, I still seek out Mitch anytime I need to feel good. Uh, but that year, without the terms and conditions of employment specified, they hadn't been there in place, it was, it was a very difficult circumstance for everybody involved. Not just the teachers, but for everybody involved. Mm-hmm. It, it was just totally unproductive.
0: Yeah. The other thing I was thinking about in in terms of how the students might feel the impact of less um, powerful unions is in class sizes, too. I know, at least at the higher education level, I do a lot of back and forth with our administration talking about class sizes and ensuring that the class sizes are appropriate for the particular class. You know, um, one thing that I could see us losing out on and students really noticing is having that class size go up so basically so if i if i for example i teach stress management i do a lot of interactive things activities with students in the classroom we're talking about their stress we're doing a lot of discussion that's capped at 35 and there's no reason why the administration couldn't decide we're just going to put that at 70 i'm just going to they're going to combine two sections in one now you just teach we have a room big enough we'll just put you in there and you'll have 70 students well that would fundamentally change how I interact with those students in the classroom. And if we didn't have the ability under the contract to go back to administration and sort of do this negotiation through sort of a shared governance process, they could easily just up the class sizes and say, we're going to pay half as many teachers. We'll just stick twice as many bodies in the room and you can deal with it. Am I way off base here?
2: No, that's, <laughs> that's right on the money. I think there's all kinds of impacts that you can uh, illustrate that happen if you lose the right to collectively bargain, you Mm -hmm. lose that contract that addresses these items, class size is one of them, and the other is again, just the freedom to teach as you see best, that fits you best. If you go back to my original example, and you impose on either one of those faculty members that I described, the other's style of teaching, it wouldn't work. If you make the guy get out from behind the desk Mm -hmm. and march up and down the uh, center aisle of a lecture hall demonstratively, he won't do as well because that doesn't fit him best. Mm -hmm. But his effectiveness was clear. I learned to write, Mm -hmm. just like I learned about sociology from the guy who was marching up and down the center aisle, because that's what they were best at. That's how they best delivered it. And they had the freedom to do that. And that's what we're looking to provide for our faculty as well.
0: Can we just spend a a little more, more time? I know I'm sort of circling back here, but Going back to some of the changes that have happened with legislation, I know that people who are within unions have talked a lot about the fair share dues and how that's kind of a sticky issue, right? So can we talk a little bit about what that is, how that works, and, and why that's a valuable thing for unions to be able to have?
1: Well, first you have to understand it's going to go away.
0: But what is it first? Because we have listeners who probably have no idea what I'm talking about when they say, what do you mean?
1: So in the state of Minnesota, as in many other states, you have to opt into the union you do not have to be a member of the union
0: right so not all teachers are members of the teachers union
1: not necessarily right. however because the union does uh, uh, performs a, a whole series of activities not the least of which is negotiating uh, the terms and conditions of employment your contract then those non-members are required to contribute to that. And in our case, it's 85% of the dues. Mm -hmm. And so that money goes to what it is that the union does for their benefit. It does not go to our political action that is outside of that. That's taken up with that 15% that uh, members actually pay. So you do not have to belong to the union. Currently, You have to contribute Mm -hmm. to the benefits that you receive through the actions
0: of the union. That's negotiated through the contract, for example. You're benefiting from any raises. Right. Any salary increases that might come through the work of the bargaining team of the union, they apply to everybody, not just the union members. Correct. Everybody. Yep.
1: It doesn't make any difference if you're a member. If Mm -hmm. there is a, for example, a perceived violation of the contract, a grievance, then we represent that individual whether or not he or she is a member.
0: That goes back to that due process. Right. Right? Absolutely. You'll you'll protect that for anyone, even if they're not a member. Exactly. A full member.
2: I think that Jim made a key point, and that is that other 15%. That is very clearly documented. It is tracked closely every year, and that is the political action element of the organization. And for those who don't want to contribute to that, Mm -hmm. they don't have to. They can choose to be fair share, not be full members, but still pay for those benefits they're receiving, the collective bargaining, the representation, the other things that
1: come with it.
0: So when you hear union people talk about fair share members, that's what you're talking about. They're
1: not members. They just pay a fair share.
0: They pay a fair share. So they pay a proportion of that cost for negotiating the contract, for negotiating those benefits, and for ensuring the due process. But they're not paying the extra amount that members pay that support those other activities that may involve lobbying legislators, for example, to fund our colleges. Gotten,
1: this is where it's gotten perverted. Mm-hmm. So the case that's currently in front of the Supreme Court, right. Janice v. Me, right argues that paying any money, any money, is a political act. Never mind that everybody in this room, I presume, pays taxes <laughs> and can't opt out of paying taxes I, or determine I cannot. Their tax I've been told I go. cannot opt out of my right. taxes.
0: My accountant says it's not optional. N-
1: never mind <laughs> that. The argument before the Supreme Court, the, it's already been argued now, they're deliberating, right. is that paying any money to an organization is a political statement. And therefore, the individual should have the opportunity to opt out completely. The presumption on the part of public sector unions is that that is going to obtain in front of the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is going to say, yes, that's the case, and fair share is going to go away.
0: Just to recap what you're saying, so the Janus versus ASME, which is the court, that, the case that's in front of the Supreme Court right now, it's been heard, but we, we don't have a ruling on it yet, but we're presuming that when the ruling does come down, it's going to be in favor of Janus and, and against the unions collecting any money. From people who aren't what we essentially just called full members, so you lose a proportion of that money that's mm-hmm. coming in, even though that fair share contributor is still benefiting from the contract that you would have negotiated.
1: Yep, in effect, but they wouldn't they pay are, into it. They're freeloaders. Sorry, but that's what they are. It, well,
0: in it, social psychology class that you know I teach, we would call that social loafing. <laughs> they're social loafers. Same thing. <laughs>
2: Yeah, and, and to uh, draw on the analogy regarding taxes, this is uh, not paying your taxes and continuing to drive on the roads.
0: So you benefit from what other people then are paying for, yep. and you're not paying for it. Exactly. So you mentioned public sector unions. I know we've been talking about teachers unions specifically just because both of you represent teachers unions, but what's encompassed by public sector unions? So if this Supreme Court case is in favor of Janus, what unions will that impact?
2: All the unions that represent any public sector worker. Um,
0: nationally, right? So nationally, this is the Supreme this, Court. So this, this would be across state lines. Yep. Things like firefighters, police unions. Are those public sector unions? They're
1: always exempt. Oh. They are, they are That's what happened in Wisconsin. Yeah. They got a special exemption. They're considered essential. Uh, God knows that I believe that education is essential. But anyway, <laughs> they, they enjoy certain special dispensation in, the, in, in this particular realm that we do not. Let's keep it within the realm of education because Mm -hmm. education isn't defined exclusively by faculty unions. So within Minnesota State colleges and universities, Minnesota State, where uh, Kevin and I work, Mm -hmm. uh, you have a public sector union that focuses at least on Kevin's campuses. I believe they're advisors. And on ours, they work in IT. That's MAPE. You have MMA. You have AFSME, You have MUSAF or ASF. And those folks are within the system office as well as on each one of the campuses.
0: So not just the teachers, a lot of the staff, people who work in financial aid, people who work in advising, the business office, all those areas that really make education function, Yep, they'd all be impacted. That's right. So this is a pretty sweeping decision that's going to come down from the Supreme Court. Absolutely. Does this will affect all public sector unions nationally with perhaps some exemptions. What's the best way for people to get involved in helping to protect the benefits that the unions provide to us? Even if you're not necessarily in a trade or a teacher's union, what can you do?
1: Well, so it's important to know that the Supreme Court decision does not eliminate unions.
0: Just it'll impact your ability to collect
1: that's right. Money. Fair share of dues. dues. Their agency mm-hmm. fees, yes. And so support for labor is still important. Mm-hmm. We'll still have in place a, a law within the state, the Public Employees Labor Relations Act, that allows unions to function and to represent its members. And there will still exist supports for labor. It opens a door. And it allows those organizations that Kevin was referring to back when we started talking about this to come into the state and begin having uh, the opportunity to hammer away and try and get rid of collective bargaining agreements and, and unions massively.
0: Right. So that big money is going to come in with their template yep. and start getting our try to get our legislators to pass the same kind of package of legislation that's been passed in other states to dismantle the unions. So
1: the answer to your question, in part, is they have to support, if folks need to support, if they believe in what it is that we do and mm-hmm. the values that we espouse, is to continue to support labor and resist those outside entities coming into the state and saying, no, everybody needs to be an individual except for the employer.
0: Resist that every person for themselves mentality. Right. It seems to me like one of the most Valuable things that people listening who may not be a member of a union but support the work that unions do and the benefits they provide is to find out who their legislature is at the state level and at the federal level and find out what their positions are and then of course, vote right <laughs> Vote in November.
2: We can't control what the Supreme Court's going to do. right that court the case has been heard. they're deliberating yeah. they're going to issue a ruling by the end of June. We can't do anything about right. that right now. We can do a lot about what happens in November, Mm -hmm. and that's really the next step for those people that you're describing who want to show support for unions, who are currently active members of unions, who want to see that continue. That is what you can do, is get engaged politically in November, and certainly before November as well.
0: You can start now even finding out the positions of different candidates, knowing who they are, getting involved in the caucusing process, and getting involved with campaigns if that's what interests you and start supporting those candidates who support labor issues so that we don't have what happened in Wisconsin and Iowa. You were talking about in Iowa the Republicans, and and not that it's all Republicans necessarily, but there was a particular group in Iowa who took over control, and did you say it was three weeks they passed this legislation? It was
2: less than three weeks.
0: Less than three weeks. Really undermined their unions in a short period of time
2: deliberately attempted to undermine yeah. the union.
0: So if we want to avoid that here in Minnesota, it's just really critical that people start paying attention to labor issues if they're not already. Learn about the different candidates and make a commitment to vote in November because it's a midterm election. So often people don't pay as much attention. It's not a presidential year. But we're really hoping at least in indivisible MNO3 that we can really motivate people to come out during this midterm election because there's so much at stake.
2: Absolutely. And I, and I personally believe there's a lot of reason for optimism just based on what we've seen inside our organization and what I've experienced personally just in the past few weeks. As part of this whole Janus effort, we're going back to all of our members, all the people we represent, and asking them to recommit to the union by signing a new card that mm-hmm. says, post-Janus, I'm in the union. As of yesterday, and this is a number that climbs every day and has been now for several months— of our current members had signed that card saying, I'm with the union post-Janus. And again, it's climbing every day. And we've also picked up a number of those folks who are currently fair share, Mm -hmm. non-members, who are saying, well, if I have to make a choice, I'm choosing the union. I see that as a real sign of momentum and a real reason for optimism as we go forward in a post-Janus world. The other thing, from a more personal standpoint, that I think is a real sign of progress was the attendance at my Senate District Convention a couple weeks ago. Yes. So you mentioned this being an off year Mm -hmm. um, when you typically will get less attendance. At uh, the Senate District Convention I attended, there were 180 delegates. Two years ago in a presidential year, there were 120. So there was was a a 50% growth in a non-presidential year in attendance at the Senate District Convention. That gives me great reason for optimism heading into November. It's That's momentum. It's momentum that has to be sustained. But I think it's something to look at and say, there's a reason to be optimistic.
0: It's good to remind ourselves that there are a lot of people out there who are fired up, who are motivated, who are now paying attention, who may not have been paying attention before. And it gives me also reason to hope that in November we'll have a a really huge voter participation rate. Again, I'd like to thank you for being here, talking about these really important union issues with us, and remind our listeners that if you're interested in getting involved, you can go to our website, which is indivisiblemn03.org. You can sign up to become a member of our group. You can see what our events are coming up. One thing that we are going to be working on is voter registration and doing some voter outreach, so really trying to get people motivated to come out and vote and get some people who maybe haven't voted before, aren't registered to vote involved in that. So lots of ways to get involved. Please check it out. So go tell your neighbors and even the strangers, there's so much to share.